He said he was a screen actor, a film director, an art aficionado, a physicist, a seafaring captain, a financier, and a member of the British aristocracy. The truth was, he was none of these things, with possibly the exception of being an actor. In a sense, that is what he spent nearly his entire adult life doing, acting. But it was never for film or television. No, it wasn't that kind of acting. The kind of acting this man was somewhat masterful at is known as something else, being an imposter. He lived an inauthentic life as a pretender, a charlatan, a grifter. He was drawn to all the finer things in life, the high society, money, wealth, status, and the more bombastic, the better. And he would never even attempt to earn it on his own. He jumped from country to country, state to state, city to city, and name to name in order to con, deceive, cheat, and double-cross anybody taken by his charm. And he would go to any lengths to ensure his secrets were kept even murder. This is the tale of the Rockefeller that never was. Welcome dreamers to this latest episode of California Dreaming. I hope all of you are well today. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for all the amazing support that you have shown this podcast. If it weren't for you, I would not have been able to sustain this, and I am forever grateful for all you do to keep the lights on here for us all. There are many ways that you can help California Dreaming grow. I would love it if you would take a few minutes to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And you know, I think you can sign up for an account on any computer. You don't have to have an iPhone to have an iTunes account. You can recommend us on the social media platforms that we are on, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And of course, if you can't get enough of this podcast, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you can instantly access dozens of exclusive full-length episodes you won't hear anywhere else. And for this week, I would like to thank Nikki C., Angie F., Sarah L., Stephanie A., Jana H or Jana, it's J A N A, Rachel J and Odalis L. I hope I said that right as well. O D A L Y S for either joining Patreon this week, jumping up to the next tier, or for opting in to the annual subscription, which does save you 15% over the year. And by the way, if you are currently a patron and you signed up in the last six months, I am just now getting caught up on mailing out thank you cards. I just dropped 70 cards in the mail a couple days ago. And depending on which tier you choose, some of the perks include stickers. I have a whole bunch of designs that I've ordered over the years. I also give out refrigerator magnets, drink coasters, and buttons and pins, along with a thank you card from yours truly. And I do handwrite every single one of them, which is why it takes me forever to do this. I've fallen behind, so I've started to try to write them in bed before I fall asleep. And that seems to be working well, sort of. I have a hard time sitting at a desk filling out cards. So you should be receiving your thank you cards in the not too distant future. All right, so let's get started with today's episode. This is a story of a man known by different people in different places by many different names. At the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, he was Chris Gerhardt, an aspiring filmmaker. He was Christopher Chichester, a descendant of British aristocracy. Once Chichester found himself in some trouble, he turned into Christopher Crowe, who is actually a real person, a television and film producer whose name was lifted from the credits of a TV show. But this fake Christopher Crowe would masquerade as a Wall Street investor, despite having no knowledge of the world of finance. And finally, he would settle on the name James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller, or simply Clark Rockefeller for short. 
And yes, it would be those Rockefellers that this man chose the name from. One of the most prominent and powerful industrial, political, and banking families in United States history. This man, whose real name happens to be Christian Gerhardsreiter, in choosing Rockefeller was quite ambitious when he picked that particular name. But for many, many years, people believed him. So for the rest of the story, I am going to just call him Christian. And as we bob and weave through his various incarnations, I will periodically refer to him as Christian posing as so-and-so or people who knew him as such-and-such name, just in order to clarify which particular phase of his life he was in at any given time. But for the most part, I'm just going to call him Christian. So Christian was born Christian Carl Gerhardsreiter on February 21st, 1961, in the German state of Bavaria, which was in what was then West Germany, to parents Simon and Irmgard. Their lives were very rustic and largely unremarkable. Christian's dad was a painter by trade, and his mom worked as a seamstress. They didn't have a lot, but it was easy and manageable. And from all that I read about the story, Christian, who was the only child for quite some time, was the kind of kid who his parents spoiled. He was indulged and pampered. His free time was spent hanging out with the other children who lived in the same town, but his favorite thing to do was to watch American television shows. Because West Germany and the United States had good relations, American products and American culture was very much infused with the German culture, and this included American movies being shown at the local cinemas and American TV shows broadcasted into German living rooms. From a very early age, Christian had become a huge fan of all things American, especially those movies and television shows. Those who knew him growing up recalled him constantly talking about someday making his way to the United States to attend film school and one day becoming a movie producer and director. But it wasn't going to be easy for Christian to make his way out of the tiny rural town that he lived in, where nobody really aspired to very much beyond that. But Christian, he was determined to somehow make his dreams come to fruition. He felt like his mother and father sort of just resigned themselves to remaining in the same place for their entire lives, which they were perfectly happy to do, but not Christian. He wasn't going to settle for the same modest, unremarkable existence that his family chose to. However, there was a side of Christian that was a bit of a troublemaker as he was growing up. For simply his own amusement, one of his favorite things to do was to make prank phone calls, really for no other reason than to get a laugh for himself and maybe show off to some of his friends. But there were times when his pranks were a little bit more mean-spirited. There was one reported incident where Christian had gone up to his teacher's desk and held out his hand with his fist closed as if he was going to hand something to her and told her that he wanted to show her something. When she glanced down at his hand, he quickly opened his fist, and in his palm was a pile of black pepper. And before the teacher had any time to react, he blew a puff of air into the pepper, and it went all over the teacher's face, into her eyes, her nose, and her mouth. This incident would give us a glimpse of this young man's character, that he really isn't all that concerned with people in positions of authority nor is he concerned about whether or not he hurts anybody. I mean, can you imagine doing something like that to a teacher nowadays? The school would probably call the police. You just can't do stuff like that to people. No way. I didn't find any information about how Christian was disciplined, if he was disciplined at all. Another thing about Christian that people took notice of right away was his interest in dressing much more fashionably than just about everyone else in the small town in which he lived. He aspired to be a star, somehow, some way, and a part of that included looking the part. He always had on designer jeans, and everywhere he went, he always wore nice sunglasses, even at night. 
even in a torrential downpour. As I said a moment ago, Christian was pretty spoiled by his parents, which is probably part of the reason why he seemed so comfortable acting like a little jerk in school. Christian knew his parents would let him get away with murder. However, when Christian was 12, his parents had a second child, another son, and while Christian had been given all the attention in the world before, his parents became pretty busy taking care of a new baby all over again. But it really didn't seem to take too much of a toll on Christian. It wasn't that he was starved for attention from them, but what it did allow for is for him to do more and more things on his own without much interference or resistance from his mom and dad. Christian pretty much ran the household anyway, but the baby kept his parents even more distracted from whatever it was he was going to be getting into. On a very dark and rainy evening in 1978, Elmer and Jean Kellen, a pair of tourists from California, were driving down a stretch of the Autobahn trying to figure out where they were headed. The rain was coming down in sheets and they really couldn't see that well. And as they went along, not driving nearly as fast as they could have on the largely speed limitless German highway, the headlights on the vehicle illuminated a shadowy figure standing along the margin of the highway with his thumb out, looking or hoping for a ride. The Kellens were pretty much lost. They couldn't figure out where they were or where they were headed. It was getting late and they really needed to find a place to stay. So when they noticed the hitchhiking silhouette, they decided to stop. They figured maybe he could help them with some directions and they could help him by giving him a ride, which the young hitchhiker accepted. Despite being stuck in that downpour, the young man was in a very jovial mood. I guess I would be too if I were stuck in the rain and needed a ride and a nice couple, who were in their 50s at the time, were kind enough to stop and offer. And to their surprise, while he had a prominent accent, he spoke impeccable English when he told them his name, Christian Gerhardtswriter. At the time, Christian was only 17 years old. Another thing that the couple noticed as somewhat peculiar is that this man was wearing sunglasses at night in this stormy weather. Like I had just said, even in a torrential downpour. So in the small talk that ensued in the car, the Kellens learned that Christian worked as a tour guide for those who spoke English. What luck, right? What are the chances that you're lost in a foreign country, in this downpour, at night, on the freeway, with no idea where to look for a hotel, and you take the chance on picking up a random hitchhiker, and he just so happens to be a tour guide of all things? And you've probably guessed this, that it wasn't true. It was just Christian running his game on this older couple. Anyway, they asked him if he knew of any places nearby where they could get a hotel room for the night. And without hesitation, Christian told the couple that he lived close by, really close, and they could come there with him. If they wanted, they were welcome to stay the night. And with that, he brought the Kellens home to the house that he shared with his parents and younger brother and introduced everybody. The Kellens hadn't eaten yet, so Christian took them out to a nearby restaurant to get something to eat. And while they were getting to know one another, Christian told the Kellens that he had a lifelong dream of moving to the United States, attending film school, to hopefully one day produce and direct his own movies. After dinner... They got back to Christian's house and they settled in for the night. As I had mentioned earlier, Christian had been very coddled and spoiled by his parents and the Kellens made note of this too. Despite there being three other people in the house, they noticed that the entire living room, the biggest room in the house, had pretty much been taken over by Christian. All of his things, all of his belongings were in that room and only he spent time in that area of the house. And on a side note, I thought it was kind of weird that the parents were just okay with Christian bringing home an American couple in their 50s and offered up the family home as a place for them to crash for the night 
We would come to find out that befriending the Kellens was a part of Christian's plan to get to the United States. And the Kellens were from California, which is the epicenter of entertainment and filmmaking. But I don't think my parents would be thrilled if I brought home strangers to stay the night without asking them first. And I wouldn't even ask because my parents would have said no. And as a parent, I wouldn't like it if my daughter did that either. I mean, I wouldn't leave the couple out in the rain, but I'd only go so far as to help them find a local hotel, maybe let them use the phone because, you know, this is 1978, so there were no cell phones and no GPS. So it wasn't uncommon to rely on the kindness of strangers when you needed help. But the fact that Christian invited these people for the night without considering what his parents might have to say about it really demonstrates to me that Christian ran that household. The following morning, as the Kellens were getting ready to leave, they thanked the Gerhardt's writers for their hospitality. And they also made sure to tell Christian that when he does make his way over to the United States, if he so happened to find himself in California, to not hesitate to reach out to them. They gave Christian their contact information, probably thinking that they'd never see this kid again. The Kellens left the home and continued on with their travels. And it was in that moment that Christian decided it was time to follow his own dreams. He was determined to make it to America, and he was never going to look back. Not too long after, and similar to the manner in which Christian had met the Kellens, he next met a young man while riding on a train in Munich, also an American, but closer to Christian's age. His name was Peter Roccapiori. Peter was there in Germany on a European backpacking adventure before he was set to start his first semester in college later that fall. Using the same story that he told the Kellens, Christian told Peter that he worked as a tour guide for visitors in the area who spoke English. So the two young men spent the day together. Christian was showing him all the sights and points of interest for which Peter was really grateful for. Christian also shared his desire to one day make his way to the United States in order to study film and hopefully become a movie producer and director. Peter told Christian if he was ever in the area where he lived to get in touch and he'd return the favor and show Christian around his neighborhood, which was Meridian, Connecticut, a city about halfway between New Haven and Hartford. And Peter offered his contact information to Christian as well. So now Christian had two solid contacts in the United States, Peter Roccapiori on the East Coast and Jean and Elmer Kellen on the West Coast. It would only be a couple of weeks after meeting the Kellens and Peter that Christian would obtain the application that he needed to fill out in order to apply for a visa to get to the United States. He listed the Kellens as the people who were going to be taking care of the financial end of his visit and he listed the Roccapiores as the people he was going to be living with while in the United States. The next obstacle was, what was he going to tell his mom and dad about going to the U.S.? Personally, I didn't think it was going to take much convincing for Christian's parents to give their blessings for him to head to the United States. Not only did they seem to not have a problem indulging their son, they were likely well aware of his long-standing dream to go to America. But Christian came up with the fake story anyway. He told his parents that he found a job in New York City working at a radio station. He said that this was going to be his first step in getting his foot in the door in the entertainment industry. He then asked for money for a plane ticket to get him there, which they not only readily agreed to, they also said that they would give him a monthly allowance to help him with his cost of living until he was able to get on his own feet. And it wasn't like Christian's parents were rich or making money hand over fist, his dad being a painter and mom was a seamstress. This was pretty much all the extra money that they had to spare from month to month. With Christian's visa approved and his airfare paid for, he finally flew from Germany to Boston, Massachusetts on October 16, 1978. 
But before Christian would embark on what would ultimately become a three-decade-long odyssey, he called his parents back home in Germany and complained that the airline had put his luggage onto the wrong flight and he literally had nothing with him. So they wired him whatever money they had left. And with that, Christian would pull the very first of many, many scams to come while he was in America. Once Christian picked up that wire transfer from his mom, he purchased a bus ticket and headed to Connecticut. And once he was near the area where the kid he met on that train, Peter Raccapiori, lived, he found a payphone and dialed the number that he was given. Peter's mom answered the phone, and Christian told her that he was the tour guide from Germany who showed Peter around several weeks earlier, and that Peter invited him to his house whenever he planned to travel to the United States. Peter had never mentioned this to his mother, so she was a little bit taken aback. But then, Peter probably didn't think Christian was going to come, at least not this soon after. And Peter's mom didn't want to be rude. This kid was only 17 years old and in a foreign country. And if her son invited him, well then, she couldn't exactly tell him he couldn't stay. So she obliged. And not only that, Christian asked her for a ride from the bus stop, which she again agreed to. If nothing else, Christian Gerhardsreiter is quite the charmer. There is no doubt about that. While staying with the Roccapiores, Christian was already preparing for his next move, as he knew he wouldn't be able to stay with them for an extended period of time, and he really didn't want to be stuck in this small town. So after doing a little bit of research, he discovered the nearby city of Berlin, where most of the residents were older, those that have retired, they have money, and they have nice houses. He placed an ad in Berlin's local paper looking for a place to stay for a German exchange student, and that ad worked. Christian received a phone call from a woman named Gwen Savio. She worked at the local library, And her family, while they didn't have a spare bedroom, they had a space in the living room that he could stay in, a space that they had offered to other exchange students in the past if he was interested. She told him that they had somewhat of a full and active household. It was herself and her husband and their four kids. And this sounded like the perfect setup for him. He was kind of wearing out his welcome at the Roccapiori's anyway, So anxious to get to the Savio's home, and he had all intentions of not just visiting them to see if this would work out. He was wanting to stay starting that same day. Christian packed up all of his stuff and left on foot, heading to his next place to crash. In an interview with Investigation Discovery, one of Savio's sons, Edward, described seeing Christian for the first time. He said, this kid just shows up at the end of our driveway. He just kind of strutted, you know, he came in here and he was just like, I'm here. Hello, how are you? I'm Christian Gerhardsreiter. And as they sat and talked, Christian proceeded to spin some very elaborate stories about his life and his home back in Germany. Edward further said, From the beginning, it was apparent that Chris was from a higher level. Of course, we come from money. Of course, we have maids and people take care of us and make dinner and clean our clothes and do all of this. And the way he sort of moved his arms and gestured, it was almost like if he had money, he'd have been throwing it. He'd be throwing it in front of him and walking on it like rose petals. So Christian managed to charm the Savio family and they agreed to give him free room and board and Christian managed to enroll in the same high school that all the Savio children went to. (sighs) Dreamers, it's crazy to think how easy it was for him to get away with stuff like this. Nowadays, it would be impossible, but I guess at the time, since he was an exchange student, he had to be in school and it didn't seem like all that big of a deal. And according to Edward Savio, it was obvious that Christian really loved being in America, stating in his interview on Investigation Discovery, he wanted to make it here. He would mostly sleep on the couch in the living room, 
you can hear him watching TV late at night. He was gathering information from those TV shows. You see, Christian would pick up the manners in which the actor spoke on TV, and he worked on perfecting speaking English, but also with a snobbish kind of accent. In a Vanity Fair article about this case in 2008, it was said that one of Christian's favorite television characters was Thurston Howell III from Gilligan's Island. The article said, The character played by Jim Backus, an ascot-wearing millionaire, member of the Northeastern elite, who is so rich that he will take tens of thousands of dollars and multiple changes of clothing for a three-hour tour. So you get the idea. If anyone were to describe the accent that Christian was trying to pull off, that would be the best comparison, the accent of Thurston Howell III. If you are familiar with Gilligan's Island and you watched it on TV as a kid like I did, then you know exactly what we're talking about here. And if you don't, then you'll have to go on YouTube and look it up there. And in watching interviews with Christian later on, after he was finished pulling off all of his cons, you can tell he still tries to pull off the same snobby accent, but by then, it's probably just how he really talks since he had done it for so long. All it was was Christian's attempt to pretend to be what Americans thought were rich European aristocrats and what they sounded like. As the story goes, we are going to find that a long-standing theme that will follow Christian throughout his entire time that he's in the United States and likely dates back to the manner in which he was raised by his parents is that he is an extremely lazy person. He wants everything done for him. He wants everything handed to him, and he has very little desire to put forth any effort for anything which is ultimately going to be the core reason for everything to come later on in this story. All Christian wants to do in his spare time is watch TV. But here in Berlin, Connecticut, as he sleeps and eats for free at the Savio's house, he isn't even doing the bare minimum to contribute to the day-to-day taking care of the house tasks. It seems as though he expected to be waited on hand and foot. He wanted meals cooked for him, he wanted his laundry done for him, and he never cleaned up after himself. He told the Savios that that was just what he was used to. That was his type of lifestyle. Everything was done for him because they had hired help back at his home. And doing these things, these menial tasks, was beneath him. This arrangement would only last a couple of months taking Christian into early 1979. The Savios put up with a lot of Christian's behavior, but there was one final incident where the Savios had had enough of him. It was deep into winter by then, and winters in the Northeast are frigid, and on this day, it was snowing as well. The Savios' eight-year-old daughter arrived home from school. The bus dropped her off in front of their house. She walked up to the front door, but it was locked. She knocked and knocked and knocked, and she couldn't get in. Christian was right there in the living room, asleep on the sofa, and just could not be bothered to answer the knocking at the door. The little girl stood outside the locked door in the freezing cold for almost an hour. Her mother promptly ordered Christian out of the house immediately. But it didn't take long for Christian to find a new temporary place to land. As he was trying to figure out what his next move was going to be, he happened to meet another woman who worked at the library in town, a woman named Mia McMahon. They struck up a conversation and Christian eventually told her that he was kind of stranded without any place to go, that the reason why he was there was because he was about to be drafted into the West German military when he turned 18. So in order to avoid that, he fled to the United States to pursue his interest in filmmaking. Now at this time, the United States was in the wake of the Vietnam War. 
which many Americans protested and were against. So Mia understood why Christian chose to flee. And because he seemed like such a cultured and well-mannered young man, she offered him a place to stay at her house. But just like Christian had done to everyone else up to this point in the story, he took full advantage of Mia's generosity and hospitality. He spent all of his time watching TV. He refused to pick up after himself. He expected his laundry to be done and his meals to be prepared for him because that's the kind of family that he's from, he explained. And just like the Savios before, Christian just took things a little bit too far. All throughout the time that he was staying at Mia's house, Christian was running up her phone bill making international calls. All of this was unbeknownst to Mia until she finally got her phone bill. When she confronted Christian about the bill, he provided no explanation as to what these calls were all about. When she demanded that he pay for it, he flat out told her no, he wasn't going to pay. So she told him he needed to leave immediately. But this time, Christian was prepared to go. For the couple of months that he had been staying with Mia, unlike with the Savios, he had planned where he was going to head next, to the state of Wisconsin. So now we're in the middle of the summer of 1979 when Christian was asked to leave Mia's house. While he was there, he decided he wanted to pursue another one of his dreams, to attend a university in America. So during his stay at Mia's, he had submitted an application to the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, which was pretty easy for him to be accepted into because it was not considered to be one of the more prestigious schools in the state So he got in. Christian packed up his belongings and started the long journey west. But with that would come the very first in a long line of name changes. Articles and shows about this case call these various incarnations reinventions. But to me, it really isn't all that complicated. He is still the same person everywhere he goes. It's just a different name. The core of who Christian is really never changes. So leaving Connecticut, he began calling himself Chris Kenneth Gerhardt. In August of 79, Christian arrived at the campus. He checked into his dorm and began his freshman year majoring in film studies. He was also assigned a roommate, also named Chris. And apparently Christian showed up with a whole new wardrobe attempting to look a bit like Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island. So I presume Christian went to classes kind of looking like he was ready to go sailing or something all the time. And he also carried with him a set of golf clubs. But seeing as that they had never been used, we can only assume that it was just a prop to give off the illusion that he participates in fancy things like golf. This all reminds me of Lizette Lee. You remember her? We covered her back in episode 144, the drug queen pen of Beverly Hills, and how she carried a chihuahua or a Pomeranian in her purse in order to look like a real socialite. That's kind of what I see going on here. These golf clubs are like Christian's purse puppy. His story here at the university was that he was from back east. Boston, to be exact, and his father was the ambassador to Germany. Which, if I was hearing this story, I probably wouldn't believe it right off the bat because why would this guy go to some obscure university in the Midwest as opposed to any one of the elite Ivy League schools in the East where he's from? But whatever. And the accent that he cultivated was nothing like anyone there had ever heard before. Unless they were big Gilligan's Island fans, then they might have picked up a bit of Thurston Howell, but it also sort of had a pretentious kind of sound to it, like an over-exaggerated British accent. But the one thing it wasn't was German, and you kind of have to hand it to Christian. That's a pretty distinctive accent to try to undo in order to pull off something so fake, something that he really made up out of the blue. And these people in the Midwest, 
a lot of them have their own accents and slang and probably never met anyone quite like Christian. And truth be told, no matter what Christian did in order to prove that he was from a prestigious Boston family, I really doubt his peers were truly buying into it. But then again, I don't think anybody really cared. But it didn't seem like Christian ever had any intentions of staying at Stevens Point for very long. It's been opined that Christian chose the smaller university to sort of test the waters first, to get an idea of what the culture was like on an American university campus, to get a feel for the people and the routine. It was kind of like a trial run, because ultimately he wanted to go to a bigger school. He ended up attending the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, a much more elite university. And he did his usual routine of getting to know people, socializing in specific circles of students. He got involved in campus organizations. The goal was to meet and befriend people who were well-connected and the more socially elite to try to best fit in with them. What he was doing was learning how to act, how to talk, and just how to be around important, influential people in general. One of Christian's favorite places to zero in on potential connections was to network at churches. Because he was raised in the Catholic Church, he knew the kinds of people who attended, and he was able to sort through people pretty easily and find those that could be of use to him. The thing he was in need of most at this point was a way to be able to stay in the United States for good. His visa had an expiration date and he would be forced to return to Germany if he was unable to find a way to stay. And a surefire way to be able to do that was to find someone willing to marry him. And he figured he'd have a good shot finding that someone at a church. And that is precisely where he met a woman named Elaine Gersheld. He spun the same story about why he fled West Germany, but he added that he was worried about his visa expiring and then having to go back. And because he dodged the draft, he could get in a lot of trouble for that. Eventually, he got around to asking Elaine about the possibility of getting married so he would be able to stay in the United States but she didn't want to do it. What reason she gave isn't really clear, but she wasn't exactly shutting Christian down completely. She suggested that her sister might do it, and her name was Amy, and Elaine thought that she would be the type of person who would do something wacky like that. And yeah, when Christian and Amy were introduced and he explained his situation, Amy was like, sure, yeah, I'll marry you, no problem. So they went down to the local courthouse on February 20th, 1981 and made it official. At that time, Christian was only one day shy of turning 20. And that's all the marriage ever was. The couple never lived together, nor did they do any of the traditional husband and wife type of things. As a matter of fact, they only got together one other time later on in that year in April, when he needed her to sign some of his official paperwork to stay in the United States. That would be the last time he would ever see his bride. He left the university shortly thereafter, and he left Wisconsin altogether. His next stop was California. Once his papers were signed to ensure that he would be able to stay in the United States without the risk of being deported, Christian set off to California, where he intended to get in touch with the older couple that he met years earlier back in Germany, Jean and Elmer Kellen. He arrived the first week of May in 1981. You recall, they were the couple that picked Christian up as he was hitchhiking in the rain on the Autobahn. He had kept their contact information. They lived in the city of Loma Linda, California, which is a quiet suburb near Los Angeles. So when he showed up on their doorstep unannounced, while he looked a lot different than he did when they met him back in West Germany, once they remembered, they were happy to see him and invited him in. By the time Christian arrived at the Kellens, 
He had pretty much mastered speaking English with that pretentious accent that he invented. He talked at length with the Kellens about pursuing a career in the film industry. And one of the things he brought up was the fact that his last name, Gerhardt's writer, was kind of a mouthful to say. Lots of celebrities shorten their names or even change their names altogether. And the Kellens thought that that might be a good idea to think of something easier yet memorable. But Christian definitely wanted something that sounded more aristocratic. They tossed around a couple of names, and then there was one that finally stuck. Christopher Mountbatten Chichester. Mountbatten is Prince Philip's last name. When he married Queen Elizabeth II, he wanted her to drop Windsor and take on his name, but nobody really wanted her to do that. So in 1960, they decided to hyphenate it. So technically, as far as I know, the Queen's full name is Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor Mountbatten. As for Chichester, that is a name that belongs to some Irish nobility dating back about a thousand years. However, it is also the last name of one of the teachers at the high school Christian enrolled at while he was staying with the Savios, Joan Chichester. And incidentally, if you are on Patreon and you listen to the episode, I believe it's called The Voyage That Never Was. It was about Donald Crowhurst, who was a British guy that was sailing around the world. In that episode, we discussed a man named Francis Chichester, and he was the first person to circumnavigate the world by himself. Christian was telling people that he was a descendant of this Francis Chichester. So this is the first incarnation of himself where Christian begins to give himself names that are congruent with aristocracy, royalty, and nobility, all the good stuff. And the more he's able to convince people that he is all of the things that he says that he is, the more that it strokes his ego, and Christian will continue to pretend his way up the social ladder. And Americans... Well, some Americans are fascinated by this kind of stuff. There is no royalty. Nobody has these sort of titles like your majesty, duke, duchess, earl, countess, etc., etc. So someone like Christian, who can easily toy with people who are thinking they're in the company of somebody really, really important, that just feeds Christian's ego even more. So while Christian was staying with the Kellens, he did what he had done back when he was staying at the Savios. He started researching the surrounding areas to see where he might be able to work his charming con with the Mountbatten name, with the rich older people that are easily impressed by that, people who are easily duped. People who just want to be able to say that they know or they're friends with an heir of the Mountbatten family. After scoping out some of the surrounding communities, Christian decided he wanted to try to rub elbows with the residents of the well-to-do suburb of San Marino. According to the 2008 Vanity Fair article, it said, He became a regular at the local business and social clubs, where free lunches were served to members at the prominent churches where weddings with bountiful feasts were easily crashed, at the libraries where he could loiter for hours and improve his mind. Soon, with his Ivy League clothes, impeccable manners, and aristocratic accent, he was squiring the town's elderly widows, enjoying their big houses and their lavish lifestyles. He flashed an oversized calling card embossed with what he claimed was the Chichester family crest, a heron with its wings spread, with an eel in its beak, and the family motto, Firm and Foy, meaning Firm in Faith. The card read, Christopher Chichester, the 13th Baronet, San Marino, California. He not only had the ability to charm the ladies, he was able to charm the men too, as he was a skilled conversationalist. Considering that he was only in his early 20s, he knew enough to be able to hold a conversation for quite a long time about any subject under the sun. 
Everybody in San Marino was so impressed with Christian, thinking that he was really a descendant of some noble European family. But not everyone was convinced. He seemed to be getting over on the older crowd, but the younger people that he encountered, the people closer to his own age, they were way more skeptical. The biggest red flag was the car that Christian drove around in, an old tan Datsun, a company owned by Nissan, but they phased that name out in 1986. But I didn't know this. It has recently been brought back, and there's talk of phasing it out again. I have not seen a Datsun around lately, especially not a late model, but that's because those were only released in Indonesia, South Africa, India, and Russia. Anyway, I remember Datsuns when I was a kid, and I just remember thinking, could they pick any uglier colors to paint those cars? But yeah, Christian Mountbatten Chichester drives a tan Datsun, apparently. And when he had gone out on a date with a young woman named Carol Campbell one night, when she got into his little car, she noticed that there were little sticky notes written to himself all over the inside of the car, and they really didn't go anywhere on their date. He kind of just drove around, taking care of a few menial tasks, and all the while he just spent the time talking about himself and how prominent his family was back on the East Coast and in Europe. She found him to be just really weird. She got a bad vibe from him, and she didn't like him at all. One of the lies that Christian began telling the new people that he was meeting in San Marino was that he was attending film school at the University of Southern California, USC. And he actually hung out at and around the campus making it appear as though he really did attend there. He knew a lot about the filmmaking program. He knew the names of the faculty. And he even went to the school library and picked up a number of screenplays and carried them around with him. He was also telling people that he was the teaching assistant for one of the most prestigious instructors on the campus, Arthur Knight, who, according to Vanity Fair, had been able to procure guest speakers who were or were going to be filmmaking legends for his course, including Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and Clint Eastwood. This is a class where the biggest stars in Hollywood would give students an exclusive early peek at their latest film projects. Christian came up with a plethora of lies to tell people at USC including that he was well on his way to earning his master's in fine arts. But he not only claimed to be a student of filmmaking, he claimed that he was already a filmmaker, telling people that he had been involved in producing. One of his most notable works, he said, was that of a British television show entitled The Prisoner. But if anyone had bothered to have done any sort of fact-checking, that particular show had been in production in the late 60s when Christian was still a child. But if anyone ever had any doubts, Christian would be able to put his money where his mouth was on occasion, having pulled off some pretty outlandish things. In the Vanity Fair article, it pointed to a time when Christian had invited some of his friends to go to a party on the USC campus that some really prominent filmmakers were going to attend, including Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Robert Zemeckis, as well as several celebrities on the other side of the camera. He told his friends that he got them passes to the party, and he actually was able to do it. Christian had been so convincing to those that he met in San Marino that he was this up-and-coming filmmaker and producer that the local news station there in the city approached him and offered him a job at their morning television show, which he readily accepted. While Christian really wanted to be involved in movies, specifically film noir, he really needed to start somewhere considering he had absolutely no experience to speak of when it came to working in any capacity in the industry. So for the next couple of years there in San Marino, Christian kind of lived a quiet, albeit fraudulent existence, living, working, socializing, and conning 
its residents. So where exactly was Christian living at this time? Well, when he first got to San Marino, when he began talking and networking with the locals, he explained that he was in the area temporarily, having volunteered to house it for a friend while they were out of the country. But he was vague when it came to exactly where he was living. And really, nobody tried to pry and not really curious as to who he was house-sitting for or where this house was located. They just didn't ask too many questions. When he first got there, where he was actually staying at the time isn't really clear, but he would eventually find a more stable place to stay. There was one day when Christian was at church talking to another attendee when they told him about this older woman named Dee Dee Sos, and her last name is spelled S-O-H-U-S, Sos, I think it's pronounced, who happened to have a vacant guest house behind her main home, which was a mansion. Dee Dee had lived her entire life in San Marino, and by the time Christian became acquainted with her towards the end of 1982, she was well into her 60s. She was one of the wealthiest residents of the city, but she was also known to have a massive drinking problem. A couple of years earlier, her son John had moved away from the family home, which caused Dee Dee to sink deeper into her drinking, and it had become increasingly worse ever since. So as soon as Christian heard these details about Dee Dee, a rich alcoholic, he was immediately locked in on her as his next target. The period of time that Christian would be interacting with Dee Dee was over the course of about two years, from 1983 to 1985. Christian had made it a point to get himself introduced to Dee Dee, and it only took about a month before Dee Dee invited him to live in her guest house in the back of her property. And it was a perfect setup for Christian. He was able to reap all the benefits of living on a lavish estate, and he really didn't have to interact all that much with Dee Dee since she was in the main house and he was in the guest house. But sometime in 1983, Dee Dee's son, John, the one who had moved out not too long before Christian moved in, he came back. And those who knew the Sows reported that John was very upset to find out that a strange man had moved into his mother's guest house. The reason why John had come back so abruptly was because he had recently married his longtime girlfriend, Linda. They were going to stay for a while so that they could save up enough money to be able to purchase a place of their own. And it is believed that he was upset about Christian's presence because he had been expecting to stay back there in the guest house in order for him to not have to deal with his mother's alcoholism and, of course, for him and his wife to be able to enjoy the privacy back there. So yeah, finding Christian living there was an unpleasant surprise. But Christian was there and he wasn't going to go anywhere. So John and Linda ended up moving into the main part of the estate with Dee Dee. And the situation, like I said, lasted for about two years. Now, if any of you listening knows what it's like to live with an alcoholic then you could probably guess that this arrangement of John and his wife Linda having to live with Dee Dee and her drinking problem caused a great deal of problems between the three of them. And John really wasn't directing his frustrations towards his mom. He was more pissed off at Christian more than anything for taking up the space in the guest house that he wanted for himself and his wife. And what made John even more mad was the fact that Christian was some sort of big shot wannabe celebrity filmmaker that everybody in town apparently loved and gushed over, including his own mother. So there was no way he was going to be able to get his mom to ever kick Christian out of the guest house. Compounding that even more so was the fact that John was struggling to make his own ends meet. He had a dead-end job. He was forced to live at home with his mom because he wasn't able to afford to get a place of his own for himself and his wife while Mr. Fancy Pants filmmaker in the back got to live there for free and was so popular around town that it was nauseating. John felt as though his mom was more proud of the fact that Christian was living there than she was of him. And John's resentment toward Christian festered 
and he soon wanted to figure out a way to get rid of this guy once and for all. So John decided that he was going to do a little bit of investigating to see if he could dig up any dirt on this Christopher Mountbatten Chichester so he could use that information to get his mom to throw this guy out on his ass. But right before he was going to get started on poking around in Christian's background, a very lucrative opportunity came knocking on both John and Linda's door just after the new year of 1985, and it was an opportunity that neither one of them could turn down. The couple had really been struggling at their low-paying jobs. John had an entry-level job as a computer programmer at a jet propulsion lab, and Linda, who wanted to be an artist, worked as a sales clerk at a bookstore specializing in science fiction works. Neither one of them had college degrees. They had very little in the way of marketable skills. So they were having a rough go at it until they got this offer. The United States government had actually reached out to them and offered them employment with one of their elite federal agencies. But the job itself was strictly confidential. It was a program that nobody knew about and everything was highly classified. And if they were willing to accept the positions, both of them, they would need to come to New York and be trained and briefed about the mission that they were going to be placed on. So excited at this opportunity, they shared this news with Dee Dee telling her about this high-level classified job that they had been offered and that they were headed to New York and that they would be back in a few weeks when the mission was complete. And of course, Didi was excited and supportive of whatever her son wanted to do. And in early February of 1985, after John and Linda took care of the things that they needed to take care of, they got packed up. Linda took her cats to a kitty hotel to be cared for while she was gone. Dee Dee bid her son and daughter-in-law farewell as they made their way to New York for this once-in-a-lifetime job opportunity. So Dee Dee had been told by her son that he and Linda would be gone for about two weeks. At that time, they'd come back to California but when two weeks came and went and John and Linda did not show back up to Dee Dee's house, she was curious, but it didn't seem like Dee Dee was all that concerned just yet. A month had passed and there was still no word from either one of them. Then two months had gone by and by this time it was well past the time that Linda was supposed to have been back in town to retrieve her cats from being boarded, but she had never showed up. Her cats were still there. So the Kitty Hotel had looked into Linda's file and found a couple of emergency contacts, one of them being Linda's sister. They gave her a call and explained that they had Linda's cats and that she was about two weeks overdue from picking them up. Linda's sister knew how much those cats meant to her, so she gave Dee Dee a call to see if she had any information as to why Linda hadn't come back for her cats. It was then that Dee Dee told Linda's sister that her and John had taken a job with the government and that the details of the job were classified and that there was really nothing more that she knew or could tell her about it. None of this sounded right to Linda's sister, but there really wasn't much else she could do at that point but just wait. She tried calling Dee Dee several more times over the course of the next two months to see if she had any more information or if she had heard from John or Linda but still there was nothing to tell. Nobody had heard from the couple themselves at all since the day they left for this new job. Finally, by early April of 1985, Linda's sister had had enough and filed an official missing persons report for Linda. When the police contacted Dee Dee, she repeated the same story John and Linda had told her, the same story that she had told to Linda's sister that her son and her daughter-in-law had taken a top-secret job with the government in New York, and she didn't have any more details beyond that because her son was not allowed to tell anyone about it. But Dee Dee did say something kind of strange. She knew for a fact that there was nothing wrong with Linda and John because she had been receiving information from an anonymous contact that was keeping her apprised 
as to their well-being, and she was certain that they were alive and well. They just were not allowed to be in contact with her directly because of the nature of the job that they had been assigned to. They wanted to know who Dee Dee was getting this information from, who this person was that she was in contact with that was telling her that John and Linda were safe, and there was nothing to worry about, but Dee Dee had been sworn to secrecy. She was not allowed to tell the police anything, otherwise it could put everybody in jeopardy. So, with very little information from Dee Dee or anyone else who knew the couple, and without any proof that anything nefarious had happened to them, the police just had to shrug their shoulders and walk away, at least for the time being. Three more months would pass, and that was enough time for Dee Dee to decide that something was very wrong and she was no longer willing to excuse away her son and daughter-in-law not being in touch with her for more than five months by that time, especially since they told her that they'd only be gone for two weeks. She went ahead and contacted her local police department and officially filed her own missing persons report for both her son and daughter-in-law. While she was down at the police station, the officer taking the report was curious. Why did you wait almost six months before reporting the two of them missing? Dee Dee explained that she had been getting updates from an unnamed contact who had been in communication with John and Linda, and she was being told that they were doing fine, that the job was going well, and to not worry about anything or anyone. Everything was still confidential, but all was well. However, without explanation, the contact that she had been receiving these updates from suddenly stopped communicating with her altogether. She had no way of getting in touch with that contact on her end, nor was she able to get in touch with John or Linda, and that is what prompted her to finally come down to the station and make her report. They asked Dee Dee if she knew the name of this unknown contact, and she said that she did, she had just been afraid to divulge too much because everything had been so confidential, but the name of the person providing her with updates about her son and daughter-in-law was none other than Christopher Mountbatten Chichester, and he, who had been living in her guest house for the last two years, was all of a sudden gone as well. All right, this is a good place to pause this story. I do have a good portion of the second part of this case written and ready to record. I'm in the home stretch of it, so it should only be a few days before I can get the second part of this out to you. There are a couple more things I wanted to tell you about before I sign off. If you continue to listen through to the end of this, you will hear a promo from the Murderific podcast. It is a weekly show hosted by Bernadette out of the state of Maine. She covers cases local to her, cases known around the world, lesser known cases, serial killers, missing persons, mass murders, and more. And also, I wanted to tell you that I have been offered the opportunity and tremendous pleasure of writing an episode for a new podcast called My Dark Path. Its creator and host is M.F. Thomas, the author of A Sickness in Time. If you remember, it is the book that I recorded the audio version of. My Dark Path explores the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. In every episode, he illuminates a topic taken from the dark corners of the world. He has traveled all over the world and in doing so, he's been able to combine his personal on-location research with insights from experts, researchers, and historians. Every episode is guaranteed to intrigue, excite, and perhaps send a shiver down your spine. I'll include links to both of these podcasts in the show notes, along with all the links to the sources utilized in this episode. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.
My name is Bernadette, the host of Murderific True Crime Podcast. Murder plus horrific equals murderific. I cover some cases from the state of Maine in the United States and all over the world. Mass murders, domestic abuse, unsolved cases, serial killers, and mostly lesser known subjects. We don't shy away from the details, but we do that with all respect. This isn't entertainment. These are real people's lives, and I'm here to tell their story. Join me for my Season 5 reboot, and together we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time.